Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So I want to pick up today right where we left off last week. And last week, where we left off was me reminding everyone from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, that we are not those who shrink back. The author was reminding the church who started to have a tendency to kind of slip back and, and, and fall back into old ways. The author, in a very pastoral way, in this letter just kind of seized the people and said, but you're not like that. I know you're acting like that, but that's not really who you are. You are not ones who shrink back. You are people of faith. And I tried to use that same exhortation last week. You are people of faith. Every single one of you. You're people of faith. You're not people of science. You're not people of reason. You're not people of feelings. You're not people of money. You're not people of success. You're not people of trying harder. You are people of faith. That's who we are. That's our identity. Now with that in mind, we're going to jump into Hebrews 11. The author is saying you're a person of faith and therefore draw near to God's word. And then in Hebrews 11, he says, I'm going to give you some examples of people who acted on God's word. This is the big idea for today. That what people believe about God shapes their very lives. That the way they act, the words they say, what they think about, what they do with their time, all of it is shaped by God. What they believe about him creates their very lives. Now we're gonna go into Hebrews chapter 11 we're gonna read a little bit, then talk a little bit, but I'm gonna read verse one and then stop. So I don't want you thinking like, oh, we're gonna read this and oh God, we're never gonna get through this. There's 40 verses and he's gonna stop and give us commentary in every single one. One is the first, the first verse is really important for where we're going. So I wanna start by reading Hebrews 11.1. 1. I wanna expand that a little bit and then we'll go in and talk a little bit more. So Hebrews chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, why don't you uh, look up on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. I venture to say you've probably heard many sermons just on this one verse. This verse is not necessarily a complete definition of what faith is. A lot of times we look at it and we're like, oh, what is faith? Okay, this is the definition of faith. Now, I'm not saying that this isn't a definition of faith, but it's it's not a complete definition of faith. And the reason why is because faith is this word, it's this thing that you can't really just put an easy definition to, like 
Car, that's a car, got it? Stage, table, phone. It's not the kind of thing that you can just grab a hold of and hold up and say, see, this is, this is faith. Faith is that kind of thing that gets on the inside of us and you see the byproduct of it and you're like, that's faith. This is the reason why I say this is not just a clean cut definition. What verse one is, is more of an explanation of how faith works. It works in the lives of real people. It's not an abstract concept that just kind of exists out there. It is something that is seen in the lives of God's people, and he's about to show us this in 40 verses. But before we get to that, I wanna highlight the two things that he's trying to draw out before he gets into these examples. So these are the two things that you need to know about faith. One, people of faith are confident about the future God declares. That's what it means when it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's stuff that's in the future, you don't see it yet, and people of faith are confident in this thing about the future, these things that God has said about himself that will come true, People of faith have their eyes fixed on the future, but they don't only look at the future. The second part of it tells us that faith is also the conviction of things not seen, meaning that faith is also this confidence I have in things that will take place. It forms inside of me convictions about my present life. That is faith. Faith is me knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, having so much confidence that I can fix my eyes on God's stuff and what he's up to and what he's declared about himself and where we're headed in this entire thing called history. I'm so confident that God will do what he has said he will do that that confidence literally shapes my convictions on how I live my life right now today. That is faith. I'm so confident in God's will that it's gonna come true that my life and everybody's life around me is shaped by that confidence. And then what the author does is he starts going through in chronological order examples of how that principle is at work all through the Bible. What is the principle? Simple, that we as people of faith are so confident about what God is going to do that it shapes what we do today. You follow? Now he's gonna give us 40 examples, well, 40 verses worth of examples. But the way that he does this is beautiful because he goes chronologically, he goes all the way back to the beginning, the creation moment, and he starts showing us how things who, who originally, if we're just gonna go through the Old Testament, you would maybe not have connected that the reason why this person acted this way or did this thing was because of faith. You just saw this person doing this thing, but you didn't necessarily connect it that the reason why he did it was because of faith. What the author wants us to see is that everything that he talks about today, when it happened, it was a present moment, but it happened because the person in that present moment was forged by convictions about what God was gonna do in the future, even though they didn't see all of the evidence to it. So let's get into that. Go to Hebrews 11, we'll start in verse two. It says, for by it, so faith, 
the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, which was his brother, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now that's important, we'll come back to that in later chapters, but it's this idea that the blood of this man still speaks today and how Christ's blood speaks a better word, but we'll get to that later. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then verse six is interesting. It's a little commentary interjection. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pause right there. The author is starting at the very beginning of creation in verse two and three. And he says that from the beginning of mankind, mankind has had the choice to either believe God's supremacy over his own creation or ignore it and believe the lie that man is superior to God who created man. That's the option, that's the choice. You either believe God, what he says about himself, his role in creation, his supremacy, or you trust your own supremacy. And he says that all the way back at creation, since nobody was present at creation, nobody here was present at creation, nobody present that was reading this letter 2,000 years ago was present, no one saw creation, you can either believe by faith the account in Genesis 1, or you ignore it and reject God's supremacy and what he says about himself and how everything that we see got here. That's a pretty fascinating place to start when you're talking about faith, because what he's saying, he's about to sandwich where we are today, and at the end of this book, where we are today, with a whole chronological view of everybody in between. It doesn't matter where you are in time, in, in history, you either believe that God made everything we see, or you say, well, maybe it's by chance, maybe we kind of just happened here. Maybe it was just dumb luck, and then we evolved through it. The very beginning of faith starts with you saying, how did we get here, okay? But then he goes to this guy named Abel, and he says that Abel, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, you can go back and read it in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 4, but the short bridge version is that there's these two brothers, Abel and Cain, one of them uh, raises, uh, uh, one of them's a farmer, one of them uh, raises animals, and we're told that both of them brought sacrifices to the Lord, but we're told that Abel 
brought the firstborn from his flock as a sacrifice. Cain, we're told, we are told that he did bring a sacrifice, but it wasn't the first, it wasn't the best, it wasn't anything special. It was just kind of him going through, he, he got paid one day and, and he just says, all right, you know, like, the, 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 you know, uh, Comcast has gotta get paid and Verizon's gotta get paid and God's gotta get paid and I gotta get paid. There was nothing in his heart that set God apart from any of the other things that needed to get paid. He just made the decision, well, it's a thing I gotta do, so I'm gonna check off the box. But we're told that Abel believed something about God and therefore that shaped the way he brought his sacrifice. Abel believed that God was superior to all other organizations and therefore no one got paid until God received his sacrifice first. And we're told that God credited that to him as righteousness. I see what you're doing and I'm going to respond to that. Abel thought that God was superior. He really believed what God said about himself as being the creator, even though Abel wasn't there. And it shaped the way that he gave towards his God. Then we're told that this guy named Enoch was taken so that he did not have to see death. Well, the question there is why? Why was he taken so he didn't have to see death? Well, the context in Genesis 5, through 24 is that Enoch lived in one of the most wicked periods of time on planet Earth. Now you're watching the news and you're like, I don't believe it. But I'm telling you, there was a period of time when it was so wicked on planet Earth, God said the only way to solve it is just flood it and what one family start over. But there was this one man, man named Enoch, and we're told that in the middle of wickedness, when the whole world was just finding new ways to throw mud in God's face, Enoch said, I'm not with them, I'm with you. I believe your supremacy, I'm with you. I'm walking with you, not walking with man. And God responded by taking him out of that wickedness removing him, saving him from death. Now, you can preach a whole sermon on the foreshadow of what God did in Enoch and what he's doing among his people here today. But the point is that God has always been in the business of saving his people from wickedness. Enoch believed it and that's why he made a choice to live his life walking with God and not walking with men. You see where the author is going with this? We're just getting started. We're only at Enoch. Go to verse seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he did not, was, was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Even though he was living in a tent and he didn't find the city, we're told that the fact that he left a city to go to a place that he didn't know proved that he was looking forward to a better city than he used to live in, whose designer and builder is God. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she, was consi- since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, from one man, and him as, a good, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them far off. That is probably one of my favorite verses this entire chapter. These guys did not receive the things promised, but looked down into the future, saw them, and with the actions of their present life said, I want that over here. Come on, I'm gonna welcome what God says about himself and where we're headed, even though it's thousands of years in the future and my my great-great-great-grandchildren won't see it. I'm gonna welcome that thing into my life. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, we're continuing through the chronological journey of these people of faith. We're told that Noah was told by God that a flood was coming. Noah did not see the flood, but God told him this is going to happen, and Noah believed him. And that belief about something that God said would transpire in the future was so monumental in forming his everyday life that Noah literally built a boat in the middle of the desert. Could you imagine? Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. For what? It's gonna rain. It's gonna what? What he believed shaped a whole year of his life in building something. And then we're told that there's this guy named Abraham who was living with his family. His dad was an idol maker, which means that he made good money. And God told him, I want you to leave your entire family and everything you know, and I want you to go to a place, and I'm going to give you an inheritance. And Abraham, believing God would do this thing in a place he had never been to before, packed up his family and left home. Faith is this thing that we believe about God in the future that shapes our very lives and decisions today. And then it didn't stop. When Abraham got there, he was also told that he would be the father of many, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore. Abraham never saw that come true, but he believed it. And his wife conceived. In all of these examples, there is no evidence to the people who are participating in them that these things are going to happen. But the author's point is that you don't do these things so that, you do happen, so that they do happen. You frame your life around the fact that you believe they will happen. The author's point is that their actions proved something even more profound than the, the simple act of them leaving. The 
idea that Noah would build a boat in the middle of nowhere because he believed something about God says more about believing that God will send rain and more about God is in the business of saving his people. That's the story of Noah. It's not just God saving a family, it's God saving his family always. He always saves his family. The story of Abraham is not just a guy leaving home and going to a land he's never been to before. It is Abraham understanding that God is in the business of always calling men to leave what they know and go to a place they've never been to so that their lives can be profoundly changed by the God who created this world. God is in the business of taking you from one place that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, and putting you in a situation you've never been and say, now I want you to grow, and I want you to grow in the right way. And through this growth, you're gonna be connected to an ancestry that surpasses anything you could have imagined with how many children you could have here on earth. What we're reading about here is the actions that these men and women had because of what they believed, but what they believed wasn't just rooted in the actions. What we're told here is that their belief was actually rooted in something bigger. That God is in the business of saving, God's in the business of building a family, God's in the the business of building a city, and he's using his people to do it. And the idea that God was doing those things hasn't stopped. God is still in the business of doing these things. And it's at this point when it any, it, 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 where he, he expresses that when, when Noah had the opportunity, when people in the world were mocking him, he had the opportunity to say, you know what? I'm tired of getting ridiculed. I'm going to stop building the boat. At any time in Abraham's journey, he could have said, man, things were better back then, back there. I, I, I think I'm just going to turn my family around and I'm going to let God do what he wants to do back where I'm comfortable I'm not gonna leave, I'm not gonna move, I'm gonna ask God to be faithful, do what you're gonna do, make me, make me the father of, 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 of many, but, but do it back in my hometown where I'm familiar, where people know me, where I've got a reputation, where it's easy, where it's comfortable. At any point, any of these people could have gone back, but they didn't, and that is the reason why the pastor of Hebrews is is writing this letter to this church, because they are in the process of trying to decide, maybe it's better for us to go back to the old ways rather than press forward into the new ways God has for us. And so in using this chronological list of people of faith, the author is starting to drive home at this point. Don't drift. Your ancestors before had an opportunity, but they didn't. Therefore, don't do it now. He's going to drive home why that's even more important as we go through the letter. But the idea here is that we always, the people of faith, have always viewed our lives through the lens of eternity, and that shapes our present life now. Let's go to verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
So in the same vein of talking about Abraham being promised that he would be the father of many and that his descendants would bless the nations, the one child God gave him, God said, I want you to give to me. I want you to sacrifice to him. Abraham was so sure about what God had promised about this kid being the lineage for his entire family line, that he was willing to follow God up this mountain to sacrifice his son, knowing that even if he did take his son's life, God would raise him back from the dead. That's a point of the story we never read about in Genesis. But the author of Hebrews is expounding upon that, helping us understand what was in Abraham's mind. When he goes up with his servants and he tells the servants, me and my boy are gonna go over the mountain and worship and then we're both gonna return to you. Um, Abraham, that's not the instructions. The instructions are to go to sacrifice your son. Therefore, only one of you are coming back. But the way he's talking tells us he knows both of them are coming back. I know what God is asking of me and I'm gonna do it because I believe in what he's going to do through this kid, but it doesn't matter what happens to this kid. I know that God will, he, he will surpass. Like he, there is nothing that is going to stop this freight train of God's fulfillments coming to pass. And so if my son is gonna be up on uh, the, the sacrificial block, which is kind of weird because we don't do, God doesn't do child sacrifices, but even, 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 even if this thing happens that we're told never is supposed to happen, I know it's gonna happen, he's gonna come back to life. Why? Because Abraham wasn't just believing about his descendants, Abraham was believing the promise that went all the way back to the garden that there will be a man whose heel will crush the head of the serpent and will reverse this whole thing called a curse. And Abraham knew it was gonna come through his lineage. And so when Abraham is saying yes to God, he's saying yes to God about Isaac, he's saying yes to God about his descendants, his children, about Levi, about the whole priesthood. He's saying yes about what's gonna come through his lineage, but he's saying more than that. He's saying yes to the idea that God has chosen me and my family to bring his redemption plans to the nations. So when he says, my family's gonna bless the nations, I know what he means. He means, my family's gonna bless the nations with salvation because that's what God is up to. He's in the business of saving, building a city, building a people. He's in the business of redeeming. He's in the business of forgiving. He's in the business of healing. And I believe these things about God so strongly that they shape the way I live today. And so me and my boy are gonna get up early and we're gonna go up a mountain and I'm gonna obey my God. Let's go to verse 20. It says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of his sons, Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph was so sure about what God would do he gave directions about where his dead body was going to be after he was gone. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What? You're telling me that Moses saw forward to the time of Christ and his decision to leave the palace was actually rooted in this idea that he wanted to partake in the sufferings of the coming Messiah? That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. That none of these guys were making these decisions just in a vacuum, that it's only going to affect my life. The things that they believed about God affected their daily life, and the things they believed were that God was in the business of using them to bring redemption to the whole world. And Moses looked at it and said, you know what? I want to be a part of that so richly that I don't want to partake of this life. I want that other life that 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 other Savior is going to be going through. I want to count my life among the kind of people who are going to suffer for salvation. By faith, verse 27, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on, as on dry land, by the Egyptian, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days, and by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. There's that imagery of the person of faith welcoming in that coming salvation. Rahab saw these spies, but she saw more than spies. She saw the salvation of God far off in the eyes of these two men and said, I want that in my house right now. You, come on in here. I want, I want to be part of that. But chronologically speaking, we're told that in the, in the story of Isaac, that faith is seen in the way fathers bless their children. The way that the author of Hebrews is starting to steer is more and deeper, more and deeper into application. So we started with these abstract ideas of what faith is and how it's being rooted on what God's going to do and, and, and how that shapes our daily lives. And here's a couple examples, the foundation of the world, and here's Abel, Cain, things you're not, maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not, and we're going to start going through chronologically. But now we start getting really, really specific, and we're talking about these big, big concepts that apply to us every single day. Dad's in here, what you believe about God should shape the way that you talk to your children. People of faith talk to their kids differently than people with no faith. And if they don't, there's a problem. Faith is seen not just in the way fathers bless their children, but faith is seen in in the instructions of dead men's bones from the story of Joshua. Faith is seen in the way that people know that they have an expiration date on their lives. There's coming a day when they're going to die, and they don't know when that is, but they have instructions about the legacy and the way they want to be remembered and where they want to be placed after that because they believe so firmly that one day the sky is going to crack and a trumpet's going to sound. I believe that, and therefore, I want my bones placed in a certain way. Faith is seen in how parents protect their children. 
The story of Moses' faith is seen in the life, excuse me, in the life people choose to live. It's also seen from the life of Moses. Moses believed so strongly about what God was doing in the business of saving people that he didn't want to be counted among those of excess. He wanted to be counted among those who were suffering because those are God's people. Faith is seen in the refusal to live in fear or how the odds are stacked against us. Faith is seen in you hearing a report that doesn't sound favorably, but is contrary to what God has already said about himself, and you ignore that report and trust this one. Faith is seen in our festivals, in our celebrations, in our weekly gatherings, and we welcome it from afar into our homes, like Rahab. Our belief in God and his word, and his future, and what he says about himself, and our place in it shapes our daily life. And if it doesn't, it should start today. And this is where the author starts headed. He starts getting real personal. He shows up to your house, he opens your mailbox, and he starts rifling through your mail. He sits down at your computer, he logs into your bank account, and he starts looking at what you've been spending your money on. Spiritually speaking, this is what the author's about to do. He's about to start noodling around inside of your life because he sees evidence on the outside that you don't really trust what's coming. You only trust what you see here and now, and that's what's shaping what you're doing with your lives and what you're afraid of and what you're reading and what you're giving yourself to and what you're listening to and who you're hanging around with. You don't really trust what he says about himself and his supremacy and what he, the way he likes worship. You're listening to your own feelings or your own emotions or your own experiences and you're letting that shape your daily life. The author gets really specific. He bursts into a flurry of examples. At this point, he's not going, uh, we're gonna drop, we're gonna hone in on this person and talk about their life. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna turn on the fire hose and I'm just gonna let you drink this in. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Yiftah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, are you ready for this? Turn it on the fire hose. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Pause, because we're going to get out of the positive and go into the negative, because God's people don't always have a great story to tell, but even in suffering, they have a great story to tell. Some were tortured. Man, can I get, a, can I get on the other side of that comma? Like, can I be the ones who are putting foreign armies to flight and, and, and being made strong out of weakness? Do I have to be on the other side of being tortured? But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Because if you treasure the life that's coming, this life holds less value. But if you hold more value in this life than the next life, it has no weight on the way you make your decisions today. Others 
suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They never saw it come to fruition. But they believed it so strongly that it shaped the very lives they lived 3,000 years ago. And since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pause, it's the end of 11. The author sandwiches where we are today right into the chronological list of history. He goes from the foundation of the world, which all of us, even today, we've got to make a decision about what we believe about that, all the way through chronologically, right up into the point at which there was a period of time when people believed things about what God was doing and they never really saw it, and then he did it. The author is writing in the first century to believers who were alive at the period of time when Jesus rose from the dead. All of these ancestors we've been talking about believed that God was saving and building and gathering a people, but how was he gonna do it? We don't know. We don't know what the guy's name's gonna be, we don't know when he's gonna do it in history, but we believe that God is gonna do it, and so we're looking forward to this king, this Messiah, this great high priest who's better than anything that ever came before. Have you seen him? Have you met him? Not yet, but I believe, and therefore I'm gonna change the way I live today. And then he showed up. Jesus showed up. The thing that God had been talking about doing happened, and he ascended and took his seat at the right hand of the Father and said the work is finished. And then we're promised that he's going to return sometime in the future. So the author of Hebrews is looking at his church and he's also looking at us today. And he's saying that every single one of these people lived in such a way that never saw the promise fulfilled and yet their lives were radically changed. We are living in a period of time today where we have seen the promise fulfilled and we're still waiting on a few other promises. Imagine what it would have been like for Abraham to live at a period of time to have seen Christ raised from the dead and then to believe that he would also one day return. He didn't see any of it. He was living in a period of time way before the stuff ever fulfilled. And look at the way his life was lived. Do you see where the author is headed? If all of these people lived in a period of time in this way and never saw the fulfillment come to fruition. But their lives were marked by putting foreign armies to flight, believing that God has the power to bring dead back from 
a grave, being tortured, refusing to accept release, mocking, flogging. This is how they lived, having not seen the fulfillment. How much more should we, by people of faith, be living in ways that match this since we have seen his faithfulness be fulfilled in the person of Christ? and we know that his return is imminent. That's the message of Hebrews 11. But what's fascinating to me is the way that he kind of frames this out. He's using this long chronological list of the people of faith to stir our hearts to want to partake of that. When I read that list, what it should do in me by the power of the Holy Spirit is, man, my life's out of whack. If this is how these people lived, having not fulfilled the promise, and I'm on the other side of Christ's resurrection and waiting for his second coming, why is my life not looking like this? That's the first big thing that this should do. But here's the other thing. It should, it's, it should start framing out for you what it looks like to do things by faith. So, so here's what I mean. If you're looking at this and you're saying, man, my life looks weak in comparison to the people of faith, the real people of faith. You told me last week, we are people of faith. Well, when I read this about what people of faith look like, I don't see me. I feel like a coward when I read this list. And this list looks so big, I don't know where to start. It looks like this mountain that I've got to start climbing and I don't know, I don't know where to put my, my hand or my foot. I don't even know where to begin. Well, let me take you back to the very first verse of what faith is. It is nothing more than you believing what God is up to and allowing that to shape your very life today. So how does the church, the people of God today, start looking more like the people of faith throughout history who didn't see the promise, but we do? How do we start making that shift? We start living by faith. But we don't start with the big stuff. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that if you believe that God is in the business of forgiving people, then by faith, you should forgive your wife. If you really believe that God is in the business of saving people in the worst possible circumstances, by faith, you stop ignoring that person who you think is not worth your time and you give yourself to that relationship that you think is not gonna give you anything. Do you see where I'm going with this? How does the people of faith start living like the people of faith? We start doing things by faith. You don't go to church because someone wants you to. You came to church this morning by faith because you believe that God is the God who meets his people, that those who believe that he exists, he also rewards them. You believe that God rewards his people who seek him, so by faith, you showed up to church this morning. 
And by faith you opened your mouth and started singing because of the things you believe about your God. Not because the person next to you was singing, but because of what you believe about God. Do you start to see the difference and the reason why we're, we have such a chasm between when we hold our lives up to this? is because I'd say 95% of the things that we do on any given day are not done by faith. They're done out of obligation or they're done out of habit, or they're done out of guilt, or they're done out of fear. And we aren't people of fear, we aren't people of guilt, and we aren't people of habit. We are people of faith, and everything we do, we do by faith. You believe that God has given you a very unique set of skills, right? Like Liam Neeson a very unique set of skills. And you believe by faith that those skills are supposed to be used for God's kingdom here, and that's why you serve on a team. You didn't just, you didn't just happen to wake up one day and feel like, man, I kind of feel like, a, like I'm, 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 a, I'm a protector. I like looking out for people. No, God gave you that desire to want to look out for people. It's the reason why you walk into a restaurant and you, you're, you're the one who you always want to put your back against the wall so you can see the room. That wasn't taught. It's just on the inside of you because you're looking at, and you're protecting. Guess what? This is a unique set of skills God has given you. And by faith, you use those skills to serve your church on the security team. I'm not musical, but some of you are. And by faith, you make the decision to serve your church with that gift. You don't do it because we need something on the worship team. You do it by faith. Some of you are uniquely gifted to love children in the way they need to be loved, and some of you are not. <laughs> some of you are really hospitable and your, your smile is contagious, and some of you haven't seen a smile since 1983. <laughs> there is a unique set of skills that God has given you, and by faith, you believe that because he's in the business of protecting his people, because he's in the business of being hospitable and sharing the gospel, because he's in the business of telling the disciples, stop telling me what to do with children, and he gets down on his hands and knees, and Jesus is talking with the kids that God cares about kids because you believe these big things about God and where we're headed in his kingdom, you make a decision right now to shape your life around those beliefs. That is what it means to be the people of faith. And so when I say you are the people of faith, what I'm saying is that this chapter gives us an example of how we're supposed to be living and how we're supposed to be living is not based in habit or routine or comfort. When you came to Christ, what you said was, I want to elevate you above all other things. You are my king and my great treasure. I no longer treasure my own life and my own way of doing things. I treasure you above all things. And because I believe that, I'm gonna start rearranging my life now and everything I do, I do by faith. This text I'm gonna send, I send it by faith. I tell my wife I love her. By faith. 
I shepherd my kids by faith. I pastor this church by faith. I read the word of God every morning by faith. What, what do I have faith in? That God is a God who speaks to his people and when I pursue him, he responds and meets me. We are a people of faith and everything we do is by faith. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.